Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Welcome everybody. Good to see such a crowd. I'm not the star of the show. Usually I'm not here, but um, my role is just to be a kind of warm-up act, I think. And perhaps it's fair to begin with the, uh, uh, the observation that Harun has a cold and a cough. I think he's been worked a little bit too hard, frankly, by his tour managers over the last few days. And uh, Cambridge damp Finland weather has not exactly helped, so we won't be working him too hard. Inshallah, you're up for this. Your voice will hold out. Right, so let's uh, deal with this by making it to some extent an interactive session. Arun will do his thing and present his amazing book, uh, and then it'll be a chance for you not just to ask questions, but perhaps to offer your own anecdotes, um, reflections, suggestions, uh, and I think also I'm hoping uh, Sidi Harun will be talking about his next book project, which a lot of people are already very excited about. Is uh, an old friend helped me a lot 30 years ago uh, when I was young, full of dreams, in the storied city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, a place of many closed doors, shall we say. Uh, and he was one who helped open some important doors and also kind of chauffeured me around listen to my grumbles about Saudi Arabia, I listened to his grumbles about Saudi Arabia. We were kindred <laughs> spirits, um, but no, genuinely very supportive at that time, and uh, someone who has been equally supportive and open-hearted open with uh, a lot of other people in our sometimes fractious and wandering ummah. And it's been really wonderful to see that uh, in more recent years, having largely laid down the uh, tools as uh, head of a major advertising and PR agency in uh, Dubai that Sidi uh, Harun has started to write and reminisce and I'm totally envious of his power of total recall. He can remember the twinkle in a sheikh's eye back in 1973 in a way that would defy my capacities uh, if it happened more than a couple of days ago. And this is a really great gift. And I think that for the newer generation of Muslims, both heritage Muslims and uh, convert Muslims, it's important to have a window into a, a modern past, but a past that is perhaps slightly beyond the horizons of most of us when the headlines were not dominated by the latest Salafist outrages, but where the Muslim world was primarily constituted as a religious world focused on the divine rather than as uh, a morass of third world complexes and vengeful uh, reactions to the injustices of, of modernity. It was in many ways a better time. And the fact that he has straddled both worlds, living in Mecca for so long, but as a Californian, I think gives him a unique insight into how to present the unique, irreplaceable beauty of traditional Islam to people who have been uh, shaped, not necessarily badly, but certainly profoundly, by their own inhabitation of modernity, such as those of us who live here in the West. Uh, so his first book was a set of meetings with remarkable men, and his new book, uh, Heart's Turn, is about that subtle but sometimes 
neglected dimension of the religion called Tawbah, which does literally mean turning around. What happens when people come to Islam? What happens when people come back to Islam? And you start to see the religion for what it is, uh, a way of God, rather than as a megaphone for third world anxieties and resentments. What happens when it functions religiously as deen rather than ideology and genuinely helps hearts rather than egos to turn? Uh, it's one of the great stories of history, conversion. People finding that road to Damascus, that Ghazalian Tawbah, that experience that changes individuals, but also changes the history of world religions and hence of the world. So it's important, it's an important topic. And the fact that he's presented it not as a kind of tedious, dry, uh, academic presentation of the kind that I might attempt, but rather something rooted in the real lived, gritty experience of people who've been through the refiner's fire of Tauber. It makes the book particularly uh, intense, I think, uh, particularly human, and also a source of hope, because some very mischievous and dark characters can find the light and can become light to others, and this is one of the gifts, part of the unique power of monotheism. <coughs> so my khutbah is over, and I'm going to hand over to uh, the star of the show, Sidi Harun. Can, the floor is I yours. Can, you can, may do with us as you wish. I could keep, keep listening. Um, first of all, assalamu alaikum. Um, I'm going to start with the... Um, uh, with, with the introduction and the epigraph to the book itself from Abdullah Ansari of Herat. He said, Know that knowledge is life, wisdom is a mirror, contentment a protective wall, hope a mediator and intercessor, remembrance of God a remedy, and repentance a cure. Repentance is the signpost on the path, the leader of the kingdom, the key to the treasure, the intermediary that assists you to become united with God, the condition for being accepted to the divine presence, and the secret of all happiness. <clears throat> we are living in dark, uncertain times, full of distraction, turmoil and violence that are either upon us or impending. We see this turmoil every day on television, in movies, in the headlines, online. We cannot escape it. And as Muslims, we are drifting as if in a riptide, away out into an open, notional sea of uncertainty, far from the heart of our belief. I've watched this trend, sometimes in the midst of it, but mostly from the sidelines, and I have seen its impact on the hearts of believers. This book is a small attempt to ameliorate this insidious drift. Since Signs on the Horizons was first published, I've made several book tours that have put me in direct contact with many wonderful Muslims with beautiful hearts and the best of intentions. They fill me with hope. Yet I have been astonished by a deep and prevailing insecurity and lack of confidence I hear from many. The influence of a stark and rigid and frankly heretical form of Islam, which focuses on externalities and equates sin with unbelief, has had a pervasive and dispiriting influence on the hearts and minds of Muslims around the world, whether they subscribe to these doctrines or not. 
At the same time, many have been raised with a distorted understanding of their faith or no understanding at all. The late author Hassan Gay Eaton, may God have mercy upon him, once told me that when he was working as an advisor at the Regent's Park Mosque in London, he befriended a sincere and pious young Pakistani British Muslim. The young man came to him in a terrible state. He said to him gravely, Sidi Hassan, I have come here to tell you that I have to leave Islam and enter kufr, unbelief. Sidi Hassan was taken aback, to say the least. Why, he asked. The young man said, you see, I grew up and was educated here in England. I have an advanced degree and a good job, but my parents have insisted that I marry a girl from their village back in Pakistan. She is an uneducated peasant girl. She can't even read or write. I simply cannot marry her. And so I have to leave Islam. Why on earth do you think you have to leave Islam? asked Sidi Hassan. But of course I have to leave Islam because I have disobeyed my parents. This is unbelief, so I have become an unbeliever. To say that this is taking filial piety to extremes is putting it mildly. But what I find more disturbing than the young man's inherited misunderstanding is that he seems to have divorced basic human intelligence and common sense from his faith. On a visit to Birmingham in the UK, a friend of mine told me that he had attended a discourse in a local mosque where the Imam told his congregation that whoever does not bend their toe while sitting in the position of the prayer, their prayer is not acceptable to God. This idiot has no place lecturing a congregation in a mosque. But I'm afraid that this kind of gross ignorance and willful stupidity is more prevalent than any of us would like to believe. I have spoken to many young people, particularly young Muslims, who were born into the faith, who have quite naturally fallen prey to many of the temptations of modern life, or who have learned an ethnocentric interpretation of Islam that takes no account of the time and place we live in. For those who enter Islam from another faith or from no faith at all, exposure to a dysfunctional mainstream can have an unsettling impact on their new faith and practice and propel them to deviant versions of Islam that provide simplistic answers to subtle questions. Today, young Muslims read books about the perfection of the Messenger of God, peace be upon him, his family and companions, and the ancient saints of Islam, the Awaleen. May God be well pleased with them all and feel by comparison doomed to perdition or at best inadequate to the spiritual path of Ihsan that forms the very heart of our faith. Most young people have lost touch with traditional teaching. They pick up where their parents left off for better or for worse or they are stuck with very and sometimes grotesquely imperfect teaching. They feel weak and unworthy, as if they've stepped beyond the pale. Somehow in the process, they've lost sight of or never understood the fact that the purification of the heart is a process of continuous turning. In English, 
Repentance is a forbidding word that suggests a puritanical finality. But in Arabic, the term tawbah is dynamic, meaning to turn or return. At-Tawab is one of the names of God, the oft-returning. It is an active constant, an ongoing reality that renews every moment we are alive. The saint Sahal ibn Abdullah al-Tustari, may God be well pleased with him, wrote, Tawbah is a duty incumbent upon a human being every moment, whether of the elect or common folk, whether obedient to God or disobedient. Tawbah is therefore our default setting. Everyone sins, everyone, even saints. But the sins of a saint are of a different order. For an ordinary mortal, a sin is usually gross. For a saint, forgetting God for a single instant is a sin requiring a return to God. When someone asks Dulnun al-Misr, may God be well pleased with him, about repentance, he answered that the common people repent from sins, whereas the elect repent from forgetfulness. According to the master Abu Ali al-Daqaq, may God be well pleased with him, repentance consists of three parts. Its beginning is tawbah, which is plain repentance from wrong actions. Its middle part is inaba, which is a turning to God. And its end is awba, which is a returning, a returning to God. And Imam al-Kusheri, may God be well pleased with him, comments on this saying, whoever repents out of fear of divine punishment acquires a tawbah. Whoever repents out of a desire of divine reward acquires a naba, inaba. And whoever repents out of compliance with divine command, not out of desire of reward, nor out of fear of punishment, acquires an awba. The saint Rabbi Al-Adawiya prayed, O oh God, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in hell. And if I worship you in hope of paradise, exclude me from paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, grudge me not your everlasting beauty. <clears throat> of the saints, our master Sidi Muhammad ibn al-Habib wrote, so their tawbah is ongoing for God and by God. Their fear is veneration of his mightiness and awe. This book is a declaration of mercy and certainty, formed of a collection of stories I've experienced, read, or heard. It is about how malleable the human heart can be and how wrongdoing, remorse, need, and yearning intersect with divine compassion, forgiveness, and guidance. It is also about the sudden transitions from confusion to clarity, from sin to virtue, from sleep to wakefulness, from ignorance to knowledge, from foolishness to wisdom. And finally, it is about the path of our lives, which leads us gradually, and for those whom God favors inexorably, to salvation. 
inevitably my own story comes into play. If I'm going to retell the lives of others, then it's only fair that I should come clean about myself and the turning of my own heart. May God forgive me and have mercy upon me and make my turning sincere and constant and bless all those who turn to him constantly and struggle on the way. And Sidi Muhammad ibn al-Habib said, though my sins may surely weigh heavy upon me, still I trust in your goodness to mend my brokenness. Favor us, O most forgiving Lord, with repentance that effaces the mistakes which were made in times past and increase us in blessings and light and unveilings and enable us to guide with permission and the secret Support us in what we say and do, and make easy our provision from a place we do not know. Here we stand at the door of benevolence, awaiting without hardship the kindness of the friend. So the book is divided into seven sections, seven parts. The first part is, is called God Finds You Wherever You Are. And it concerns stories of people who've done some really dark, terrible things and have come through those things and uh, in, in, the, in, in every situation became Muslim through, through their uh, realization of what they've done. And it has some very beautiful stories. Most of them are very long. So I can't read from them because they're, <coughs> they're just, you have to go from the beginning to the end and see where they ended up, but they're very interesting. Uh, one of the stories is about a, 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 a London gangster, uh, Martin Askew, who um, was a, he was from gangster royalty. He was from, you know, his, his family, his grandfathers, everybody was, had been a gangster. And he came to Islam. Um, through a whole series of really terrible, violent acts. And after he, um, after he became a Muslim, he was a really violent person. He loved brawling. And he said the reason he loved brawling was that he was so deeply insecure that that was the one time that he could feel kind of at one with everything. And uh, all of his anxieties would disappear in the moment of violence that he had. So when he, after he became a Muslim, he went around his neighborhood to everyone that he'd hurt and asked for forgiveness from them. And Martin, we, we did a reading um, at Rumi's cave in London and Martin came, came along and he stole the show. I mean, once he started talking, people couldn't, you know, couldn't get enough. He's a very interesting man. So that was one story. Another story, to be honest, is, uh, you know, is, is a man who was a pimp who became, who became a Muslim and, and he, became, he took his doctorate. He's a, he's a professor and so on. But, and it's a very hard, hard story to read because it's, he did some very terrible things. Um, another story is, is about a, a friend of ours, uh, a, a good friend of ours, who 
went through all kinds of iterations, and among those, he became a Marxist, a, a communist. He fought with Fidel Castro, with the Fidelistas in, in Cuba, and he, ultimately, and he became a beatnik and was living a really depraved kind of life, but, but he was living it in Morocco, and his, um, he, learned his, his, he learned Islam through his hash dealer, you know, so, I mean, and, and this shows you how Allah brings, you know, brings people along. And so there are a whole series of stories. The second part um, is called Turning Points. And these are stories of people who didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but who m made a transition from being whatever they were before to taking a spiritual path to... Um, uh, becoming Muslim, um, finding some re reality. One of them is a man who was a, a Brahmin, a Hindu Brahmin. And the chapter is called The Only Real Brahmin because he, he, um, he became a, a Muslim after he'd experienced the, 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 um, the death of his, of his uncle who he was very close to, and he had to bury him in Benares and see his body cremated And when he was only about 15 or 16 years old. And it shook him up to the point where he, he set out on a kind of spiritual search, which ended, and it surprised him, it ended in him becoming Muslim. And um, when he became a Muslim, his family flipped out completely. They took him out of school sent him to India, took his passport away, and he had to, he ended up, the only way that he could, he could keep his Islam was that he had to pray in toilets for the better part of a year, because that was the only place where he could find any privacy, until finally one of, one of the, um, one of his the people that he'd met who, who was a Muslim said, look, just tell your parents you're not a Muslim anymore. And because they're just being too, restri you know, restrictive. So he did, <clears throat> and then they, they loosened up, and then they let him come back to England and finish his school. And as soon as he got back to England, he said, guess what? <laughs> I died. And now he has a very good relationship with his parents. But he said it was only after he became Muslim that he, he started reading the Upanishads and uh, the, the Vedas and uh, Hindu scriptures. And he said, I understood what they were about for the first time. So he said to his parents, I'm the only real Brahmin in the family because I understand what these, the, these are really about. So there are a number of stories like that. Um, the third part is called Migrations, which involve stories of people moving from one place to another. Um, uh, and in search of, of some reality. Um, and the fourth, ch the fourth part is called openings. And these stories involve people who have had very strong, powerful internal openings through dreams and visions and intuitions and so on. The fifth part is called a few bad habits. And this is about stuff we do that's not, we're not supposed to do, you know, and uh, which, which Muslims do all the time. And it involves um, 
It involves uh, looking, talking too much, uh, eating the wrong things, drinking, smoking, all these, these bad habits. And there are a whole series of stories to try to illustrate these things, uh, these, what, the situation that we're in. Um, and some of them are quite funny, and some, you know, some are uh, more serious. The, fi the, um, sixth, the sixth part is, is called a series of fortunate events. And this is this, the, my, my own story. So I've included that uh, in, in the book. And it's, it's just a series, it's episodic. It's a series of things that, turning points for me. And the seventh and final part is called The Beginning of the End, which is a kind of a wrap up. And it ends with a chapter called The Later, The Better. And I, th I, I think I might read a little bit from that, but um, first I'll read something from, I'm, I'm, you'll, please excuse me if, if anything is, if I'm talking too much about myself, the, the real interesting stories are very long and they don't involve me. I'm just the sort of amanuensis of other, you know, you know just the narrator of the stories. But um, be, because the stories are, very, you know, very long, I, I'm, I can't really get into um, um, reading them for you. So I'll read you something um, from the first part of the book. It's called Hospitality. In the dark of night, a cat burglar silently crept across the rooftops of Meknes until he came to a door ajar. He gingerly pried open the wooden door and carefully descended the uneven steps until he came to an opening. He entered a room. It was pitch black. He began to feel his way along the walls until he came upon a cabinet. He crouched down and began to silently sift through the contents of the cabinet to see if he could find anything precious. He fingered piece by piece, hoping for money or jewelry, anything of value he could steal. Please, take anything you think of value. He froze. The only favor I would ask is that you allow me to keep my books and manuscripts. They're of no worldly value, but I use them, and they mean very much to me. The voice was sweet, rich, and serene. A light came on. An elderly man was sitting on a bed, wide awake, swathed in a burnous against the cold, holding a set of prayer beads. Please, carry on. Take whatever you like. Every night, all night, Sidi Muhammad ibn al-Habib kept vigil, repeating the name of God, Allah, 24,000 times. The thief, speechless, stopped his foraging, paralyzed with fear and shame. In the darkness, the sheikh had pressed a button beside his bed, which was a signal to bring tea. Suddenly, one of his wives entered the room with a tea tray and poured tea for the thief. All the while, the sheikh spoke with great kindness to the intruder, welcoming him, insisting that he drink tea, invoking Allah's forgiveness and mercy. The tea was replaced by a midnight meal overseen by the sheikh. The thief burst into tears, 
weeping for a very long time. In a few decisive moments, he changed. He turned away from a life of crime and took the path of God. This is a true story. And I think one of the things that people have to understand is that you, that, that uh, tauba is, is this process, is a constant process. And people think of tauba as like I have to, you know, I'm, I repent and that's it. And if I backslide, then I'm evil and everything is wrong. But actually this is the, the nature of things. And there's this remarkable passage in the Makalat of, of, Shams, of Shamsi Tabriz, who was the companion of Jalaluddin Rumi. He said, in my view, no one can become a Muslim just once. He becomes a Muslim, then he becomes an unbeliever. Then he again, he becomes a Muslim. And each time something comes out of him, so it goes until he becomes perfect. So this is, you know, this is the nature of tawbah. It's a constant process. It's not something you do once and then you can forget about everything and everything's, everything's hunky-dory, you know, it's all happy. <clears throat> so I'll read, uh, I'll read another short story. And again, please forgive me if this involves me, but I, I can't, all the really cool stories are other people's. Many years ago, I was taken to a gathering organized at the Regent's Park Mosque in London. <coughs> I tend to be gathering a verse and only came along because my friend was the organizer and working hard to bring Muslims together. So we entered the foyer of the mosque complex and I was standing off to one side when someone came up, shook my hand vigorously and greeted me. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, said I. He stood there grinning. I grinned back. You don't remember me, do you? He stated. I was taken aback. I studied his face to see if I could place him. I shook my head. I'm really sorry. I said, I have a terrible memory. Well, you changed my life, he said. Well, that was a conversation stopper. He then told me the story of our meeting, and as he told it, I began to remember. Years before, sometime in the mid-1970s, I had been invited by one of my best friends at the time, a Malaysian engineering student and Sufi acolyte, to come up to Norwich and stay with a group of young Malaysians studying there. The last time I had visited Norwich was in 1967 with a school madrigal ensemble I was part of. We'd given a concert in the town hall and attended a party in an ancient dungeon where, for the first time, we all heard the Beatles just released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club album. Otherwise, I knew nothing of the place until my Malaysian sojourn. When I arrived, the students insisted I visit a new British Muslim who had converted to Islam in order to marry a Malaysian woman. They were eager for me to meet the new convert, and I was happy to pay him a visit. <clears throat> but as soon as we turned up at his door and were invited in, I wanted to get out of there in the worst way. I know that my memory is probably playing tricks on me, 
But the image that came back to me that day was of a kind of lugubrious Stanley Kowalski type. Stanley Kowalski was the key figure in a play called Streetcar Named Desire, and he was a brutish, kind of crude, drunken, you know, unpleasant character. He was a loutish, he looked like a loutish, humorous, working-class bloke with empty eyes. The picture would have been complete if he had a beer in front of him. He did not. Our host seemed dull and disinterested, with a quizzical look about him as if he were trying to figure out what we were doing in his house. But there I was with my Malaysian friends eagerly looking to me to tell the new convert about Islam. So I started talking. I can't remember a word I said because all I could think about was finding a smooth and gracious exit line. I jabbered on about Islam for about 45 minutes, telling stories, moving quickly from one subject to another, looking for my cue. His wife came in to serve tea. There was something shrewish about her. He looked dazed and didn't say a word or ask a question. We drank tea. I continued with my monologue until I found the right moment to announce our departure. I shook his hand and thanked him for his hospitality. We said our farewells and made our escape. I remember that once we had descended a flight of steps, turning on my Malaysian entourage with the, in the stairwell and scolding them. Why did you bring me here? What a waste of time, hopeless. When you came to my flat that day, he said, I never really knew anything about Islam. But I kept thinking about what you said. What you told me that day made me want to learn more about Islam. And the more I learned about Islam, the closer I came to the faith. And the closer I came to, the, to Islam, the farther apart my wife and I became. We eventually divorced, and now I have remarried a pious Turkish woman I think he told me that he owned an Islamic bookstore. Now it was my turn to be speechless and dazed. I learned a lesson that day. I learned that all guidance comes from God in whatever form he chooses and that we are nothing more than instruments he uses in his wisdom to guide whom he wills. May God bless this sincere believer and forgive us our arrogance and delusion. There is no power and no strength but from God. <coughs> Please excuse me, my voice is really not great. So I think, uh, are, you, are you getting bored? Shall we move on? Okay. Okay, I'm going to read you something from my, my own story, if that's okay. <coughs> this chapter is called, Who Am I? When I was 16, I had an unexpected awakening. At that point in my life, I was interested in three things, theater, music, and girls not necessarily in that order. I was not reflective or particularly well-read. I was almost totally untroubled. There were no tragedies or disruptions in my rather idyllic adolescence. I reveled in my youth and my talents. 
One summer night, after a day's rehearsal and an evening out on the town, I was now driving my first car, a red Renault Dauphin. I climbed into bed and closed my eyes. In the netherworld between wakefulness and sleep, I was suddenly, without warning, plunged into an involuntary contemplative state. One by one, I was stripped of my senses, sight, hearing, smell, touch, and then breath itself. I was paralyzed, driven deeper into an abyss of sensory deprivation and identity loss. Finally, over the precipice, I careened toward nothingness, and in this petrifying state of loss, I was overcome by a shattering, unfathomable fear. In this unanticipated darkness, my soul cried out in the deafening silence, if I am not my senses, if I am not my breath, then who am I? What is this that still exists? Suspended in this terrifying, infinite chasm for what seemed like an eternity, but was probably only a few seconds, my life changed. I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was going to die. Years later, I came across the teachings of Ramana Maharshi, the Hindu sage, who in 1980, excuse me, who in 1895, when he was 16, had a similar unexpected awakening. It was about six weeks before I left Madura for good that the great change in my life took place. It was quite sudden. I was sitting alone in a room on the first floor of my uncle's house. I seldom had any sickness, and on that day there was nothing wrong with my health. But a sudden violent fear of death overtook me. There was nothing in my state of health to account for it, and I did not try to account for it or to find out whether there was any reason for the fear. I just felt I am going to die. When I, re when I regained a semblance of normal consciousness, I leapt out of bed and crossed my room to a mirror to confirm that I still existed and that I still looked the same. My reflection was the same as before, but I was profoundly disoriented. Relieved to have survived this trauma, I managed to lie back down and drift off to sleep. This is me talking, not Ramana Maharshi. The next morning when I, wo when I awoke, the estrangement remained. I was dislocated, haunted by my momentary metaphorical death. I felt utterly alienated. The world had an unreal, dreamlike quality I couldn't shake. I broached the subject to my parents. They were, after all, adults. Surely this was a normal part of growing up, like going through puberty and getting facial hair. Trying to sound as casual and offhanded as I could, I asked them whether they had ever experienced the recognition of death. I expected a reassuring confirmation that this was all normal and not to worry. Instead, I drew a blank. They looked at me uncomprehendingly. Did I detect a gl tiny glimmer of fear? I had a girlfriend, and at a debutante's ball, gazing out upon the moonlit Pacific, I asked her the same question, nothing. I drifted for a while, isolated for weeks, 
until I came to the conclusion that I couldn't resolve this enigma on my own. I relaxed, but the experienced hovered in the background of my life like a haunting. Maharshi found his answers then and there. The shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards, and I said to myself mentally without actually framing the words, now death has come, what does it mean? What is it that is dying? This body dies. And I at once dramatized the occurrence of death. I lay with my limbs stretched out stiff as though rigor mortis had set in and imitated a corpse so as to give greater reality to the inquiry. I held my breath and kept my lips tightly closed so that no sound could escape, so that neither the word I nor any other word could be uttered. Well then, I said to myself, this body is dead. But with the death of this body, am I dead? Is the body I? It is silent and inert, but I feel the full force of my personality and even the voice of the I within me, apart from it. So I am spirit transcending the body. The body dies, but the spirit that transcends it cannot be touched by death. That means I am the deathless spirit. All this was not dull thought. It flashed through me vividly as living truth, which I perceived directly, almost without thought process. I was something very real, the only real thing about my present state. And all the conscious activity con connected with my body was centered on that I, from that moment toward onwards the I, or self, focused attention on itself by a powerful fascination. This overpowering contemplation produced in Maharshi a deep enlightenment that persisted until his death in 1950. Maharshi's teaching revolved around this one central question, who am I, or Nanyar? It took me years to find an answer to this mystery. In fact, it has taken my life. The secret lies in the statement of the Prophet Muhammad he who knows his self knows his Lord. <clears throat> and Al-Ghazali, Imam Al-Ghazali, he wrote on his deathbed, say to the brethren when they see me dead and weep for me, lamenting me in sadness, Think ye I am this corpse you're to bury? I swear by God, this dead one is not I. I in the spirit am. This my body, my dwelling was, my garment for a time. I am a treasure, hidden I was beneath this talisman of dust, wherein I suffered. I am a pearl, a shell imprisoned me, but leaving it, all trials I have left. I am a bird, and this was once my cage. But I have flown, leaving it as a token. I praise God, who has set me free, and made, me, and made for me a dwelling in the heavenly heights. Ere now I was a dead man in your midst, but I have come to life and doffed my shroud. What's our time like? We have the space until one o'clock.
Um, but if you're fading, we can switch to no, day I'm, mode. Well, I've, I've been fading for the last three days. Chance to rest your larynx a little bit, and um, okay. maybe I could uh, express gratitude for your uh, reminding us of what religion is really for. Mm. Uh, we often tend to miss the wood for the trees. And also, as I read, read the book and hear your reiteration of the stories, one finds a number of unifying threads, uh, one of which is that uh, one is not a seeker but is sought, <coughs> that God is always there <coughs> yeah. uh, seeking us out, and we're the inshallah fortunate recipients a moment of divine grace that yeah. is not something yeah. that is within our power, which is problematic for the modern idea of the will and autonomy and being in control of your life. There's right. a certain acknowledgement of helplessness yeah. that is Absolutely. inseparable from all of these experiences. Absolutely. Um, I'm just wondering if that's part of the pattern, whether you can discern perhaps, if it's not presumptuous, in the divine intention who, where, where is it that this rain is most likely to fall? Because we've described such a huge variety of human forms from different mm. cultures, from linguistic groups, educational mm. levels, genders. Mm. It looks like almost a random process. Mm. But is there uh, a pattern that's discernible? Yeah, I think, I, I think the last story that I, I, I just uh, read um, is is one of those one of those patterns that um, many people uh, are confronted with death um, in a very real visceral um, uh, way. Uh, Yusuf Islam, his his story is um, involves that, and uh, I, there's this, almost a theme through the book of people being confronted with death, either of in the case of, of the uh, Brahmin, his uncle, uh, in the case of um, uh, in, in other, uh, another story is, is near-death experiences. Uh, Aisha Gray Henry, who's a wonderful person, um, her, story, her story is in here. And um, uh, she has, she, she's one of the mo most robust, energetic people I know. And yet she has very serious health problems. I mean, and and uh, that that's a big part of her story is dealing with those things. Um, so I think that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is I, I'll read from the the epigraph, at the, which is from me uh, 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 in my in my section. I, I said, in my experience, an insane person, and I've met a few is someone who believes that the entire universe and everything in it is conspiring against him. The sane person, on the other hand, is the one who believes that the entire universe and everything in it is conspiring for him. I, fortunately, am a denizen of the latter category. And I, I think this is something that is also characterizes people who come to the truth is that they some they 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 experience the 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 um, the mercy of God, you know. In the case of Martin Askew, Martin Askew 
came to Islam indirectly through being almost beaten to death in, in a London bar or a club or something. Um, bouncers, he, he got into an altercation with some bouncers and they b beat him nearly to death. And bef just before he went unconscious, he asked God, he said, God, please don't let me die like this. And when that happened, he said there was this staggering blue flash of light and he went out but it was he he interpreted that as as an answer from Allah and within within a month or two he had become a Muslim he he'd learned about Islam and so on and he had a girlfriend who was a dancer she wasn't religious at all but she was a Muslim by birth and she said she went to the hospital and said you need to read the Quran and he said, what are you talking about? I'm a Christian, you know. She said, what kind of a Christian are you, <laughs> you know? You're not a Christian. So he found the Quran. He went up to Foyle's bookstore. And he, the first book he saw in the shelves was a Quran, so he bought it. And one thing led to another. So these things happened. I think the confrontation with death and also the the intuition that that God exists that there's a that there's mercy somehow people make people receptive to um, to belief you know something happens <coughs> a common thread people's encounter with the nearness and the mercy of God yeah. as a basis for these repentance narratives why is it do you suppose that our preachers nowadays think that they mm. can inspire their congregations to repentance by threatening them with the divine anger? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. I have the faintest idea. I, I, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, it, they think that they're doing something by scaring people, and that, that can happen in a very crude way. Um, one of the stories involves, um, uh, is about a Turkish uh, Hafiz of Quran uh, who was born blind. And Hafiz Ismail, when he was a when he was a little boy, he was like nine, nine years old. He, he he was born blind. He lost his parents by the both of his parents by the age of seven, and at the age of nine, his brothers were utterly fed up with him. They didn't want to take care of him, so they took him to a um, Erzurum, which was the town, the city closest to his his village to try to fix his eyes. And of course, that was naive. He, he, he could never have eyesight. But in the process, uh, he, this nine-year-old boy, blind boy, would be sitting with the, the people didn't stay in hotels in those, day, in those days. They, they had to stay in someone's home. They didn't have hotels in Erzurum in that time. Uh, and uh, so, uh, they, they were staying with a stove maker and Hafiz Ismail would watch, he said, I watched the stove maker. I said, Ismail, you can't see, you're, you're blind, you can't watch him. He said, no, I watched him. And what he meant was he listened and he, he uh, talked to him and everything. And he said to the stove maker, you know, you're doing this all wrong. This is a nine-year-old blind kid. Say, he said, if you cut five pieces at once, you'll save a lot of time. And it was true. So after they were, when they were getting ready to leave, the um, stove maker went to the brother uh, and 
said, I want you to bring a mushaf and make wudu, bring a mushaf and come to me. So he brought the, the Quran and he said, now I want you to put your hand on the Quran and swear that if you don't do what I'm going to tell you to do, that you're going to go to hell and you're never going to get out of it, you know. And the boy said, yeah, but I don't know what you want me to do. And he said, you have to swear. So the boy swore. And he said, you have to take your brother to uh, someone to teach him Quran. Because he knew that the boy wouldn't do it. And so it's, and, and his brother did it because he was scared, because they're very simple. And I think that preachers think everyone's an idiot, basically, or, you know, simple, simple-minded. Uh, and I think they've lost the plot to a certain extent. Um, and they're also afraid if they, if, they, if they give this message of Rahmah, that everybody will start being even more lax than they already are. I mean, don't you think? <laughs> Any questions from the audience? No questions? Anybody has an anecdote of their own? Something to add? Yeah. Um, many more stories that made it into the book. So what was your process of, of you know, choosing the stories which would be amplified and published in the algorithm? Uh, an algorithm? <laughs> Hardly. Um, no, I, I, I knew many of the people that I interviewed, and I just had a feeling that they had, they'd have a great story. Um, and uh, so, but the, uh, ironically, and this is this this goes back to what uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim said about my memory. It's not as perfect as it, as it could be. Three stories that inspired the book. There there were three stories that inspired the book. None of them are in the book, <clears throat> and one of them was uh, was this was the story of Peter Sanders, uh, who's the photographer. Uh, we know him as Abdelazim. Uh, he and I, in the 1970s, he and I walked up Mount Snowden in Wales, and he told me the story of how he came to Islam. And it was the most fantastic story. It was like the best story ever, you know. It was really a beautiful story. And I wrote it down, and that was going to be the first story entry in the book. And when I started working on the book, I, I gave it to Abdelazim, and this is like, what, 30 or 40 years later. And he, you know, he read it, he said, well, this is very nice, but none of that happened. <laughs> so I don't know what happened to my memory, but it was completely, completely wrong. So I, he was out of the book. And then another friend of ours, who uh, Sheikh Abdel Hakim knows, um, also had a great story. I knew he had a great story because I'd heard it. And so I sat down and recorded it and wrote the story. And it was, it's an, an amazing story. And I gave it to him. And he was 
delighted with the story. And then he said, but you can't publish it. So that one went out. And the, the third story was of, um, of an Israeli um, paratrooper who had, uh, uh, during the 1967 war, breached the, the Masjid Omar and something happened to him and he ended up becoming a Muslim uh, over, over a long period of time. And he's a friend of mine. <clears throat> and he said, uh, no, I don't, want you, I don't want to do the story. You know, he had his own reasons. So those were the three stories I said, I'm going to put these in, then I'm going to find some other ones. And <coughs> it didn't happen. <coughs> and one of the things um, that um, I found was that I have, there are a number of women's stories, but not as many as I would have liked because women are much more um, circumspect and they don't want to talk about things that they've done. One of the women that I interviewed, for example, and that I wrote her story um, is a wonderful woman and she has a great story. It's almost miraculous. But the problem with the story was that she, uh, I know her background and her back, she had a very rough background as a child. Um, but it was not something I could talk about. And she, the way she's dealt with that is to completely ignore it, you know. It wasn't ever part of her narrative. So she never, in the, in the whole course of the story, she never made tauba. She was just divinely guided by, you know, all these extraordinary events that happened to her, which I believe are true. But when I circulated the story to people who were reading, you know, the story. Everyone hated the story. You know, it was like I was shocked. They, they, dis, they active, dis, actively disliked her and the story because she just sounded kind of pretentious, even though I, I know her and she's not that way at all. But that's just the way. So I had to, I took that story out because it just didn't work. And when I told her, she said, oh, yeah, I knew that you'd take it out because I was divinely guided, you know, and that's, that was it, you know. There was no question of dealing with her own in, inner struggles and everything. So it was like, you know, things like that. So, and also with women, even the women that I interviewed, they were v much more careful about talking about things that they'd done in their in their past, you know, in their misspent youth or whatever, uh, than men were, you know. So what was the actual process of assembling the book? Is it mostly stories you already knew, or did you have to go out and actively sort of, as it were, go on safari around the world and uh, track down these rare yeah. beasts? And I, I, uh, up to a point. I mean, you, you suggest a couple of, uh, two or three people, and it was just really hard to find them. I couldn't, I didn't know how to track them down. And, and plus they were very far away from me and that sort of thing. The Japanese tattoo the artist. Yeah, well, I, I cut the, uh, Sheikh told me about a, a Japanese tattoo artist. I looked him up and he, he looked scary. And I, I thought he might end up, you know, committing some atrocity and he's in the book. And, you know, he, did you, have you seen the clips on him? Yes, I've met him. He's done most of the big gangster families. I know. Well, he's that, the imam of a mosque now. 
You're kidding. No, it would have been, well, maybe in the sequel or something, I'll do that one. Yeah, he was like completely covered with tats and... and uh, on the Hajj, she had quite a few remarks made. <laughs> <laughs> no, he looked interesting. I mean, there are a number, there are lots of these great stories. Um, I, I did travel, I did have to, and the, but there were some stories that I had in, in like the one that I read about the, 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 called the real guide, um, you know about meeting the guy in the Regent's Park Mosque and and that sort of thing. I already had these these stories, um, so some of them were my things I had ex experienced or heard, but then there were other other uh, stories that I, I went out of my way to to to. Um, track down and then interview the people and so on. It took the the previous book. I don't know if anyone's read the previous book, but it was called Signs on the Horizons. But that took me two weeks to write. Basically, this took me four years to write. You know, it it took a long time. Each chat each uh, chapter took about a month to do. Uh, so it's a different different process. You must find now that you've released these stories that other people are writing in with uh, similar accounts because this kind of thing is more common than one would think. People are usually loath to speak about their own personal encounters with the divine. Yeah. But very many people have had moments of that kind oh, and yeah. don't wish to speak about them or don't know how to or think it's inappropriate and yeah. the Islamic tradition of right. modesty and preserving these things as personal treasures right. probably keeps a lot of lips. Yes, yes. Uh, Might there be a, a volume two at some point? Oh God. <laughs> I, I, uh, um, I'll tell you and I'll tell you tell you in a year or something and see if there, I mean, if there's, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I'd have to have some really interesting stories. I mean, one of the considerations really was, you know, and again, the Japanese tattoo artist was one example. I just didn't know where these people would end up, you know, with all, do, you know, I mean, some people may, revert to uh, you know, their past yeah. in some way. And I, I, I didn't want a book to memorialize someone who ended up doing something really terrible. So, I, you know, there were certain considerations, like Martin Askew, for example. Um, I, I got to know him, and, he, and he's just rock solid. He's a very, very interesting man. He has, a, by the way, he has a play on uh, called There Is a Field, and it's playing in uh, Battersea, in a theater in Battersea, and it's, it's a very, very good play. So if anyone, it's playing until March uh, 15th, I think, in Battersea. But, um, so he's been very open about his story and everything, and, and so I feel confident that he's not going to end up back on the streets, you know, as a criminal or something, but that was, um, uh, and there are many stories. There, there, there are so many stories, but they have to, they have to be sort of compelling in one way or another. Not every story, I mean, there were stories that I wrote or that I worked on that just didn't work, you know, because they, they, were, they were not that interesting. They were kind of tedious or 
you know, that there has to be some kind of insight or moment. Anyone else with a question? Yeah. No, what I can say. So I think one of the really interesting things is also you disperse a lot with all the stories from traditional. Yes. Yeah. Um, just interested to know, you know, how would those stories and, and storytelling of that kind be used in the traditional world as a way of that's a very good question. Do you, do you have an answer for that? Well, there's a specific genre. Um, the genre of, it's called the Tawabin. There's a book called the Tawabin. Right. Uh, a kind of medieval, sort of hortatory style. Right. Nabi Dunya has one. Mohasabi uses quite a lot of stories right. like that. Remember Ghazali's Kitab of Tawbah from the Ihya'ul? Yes, yes. On famous penitents. Right. Um, so the others. There's a, a place for those things, and obviously it holds people's attention, yeah. gives them a sense of hope, it helps to personalize rather abstract and theoretical principle. Mm -hmm. People can see that religion does actually work, and if it's yeah. more transformative than anything else can be in somebody's life. So it's the almost mm -hmm. used that quite a lot. Lots of repentant stories in Rumi, for instance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, the tabakat of the, uh, of the saints, of the aulia. Uh, I would I I, by, I calculate that about thirty percent of those stories involve one form of tauba or another. You know, I mean, Fudai al Ibn Iyad was a was a bandit who became one of the great saints of his time. Habib al Ajami was a was a a, a loan shark. He was a nasty character who became who surpassed his master Hassan al Basra in terms of his his. Uh, you know, powers of, you know, miraculous powers. He could walk on water, you know, things like that, extraordinary things. And he was a really not a very good person. And so those stories, I, I think that they're relevant now because they, they show, even in those times, that people, just because they had a Muslim name or something like that, they were capable of doing terrible things and capable of changing at the same time. And have you noticed uh, any kind of defining difference between the ancients and the modern stories? Or is Talba the same thing, irrespective of culture and time? No, I think it's essentially the same thing in, 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 in terms of storytelling, though. Um, the, these the tales have, have been sanitized over centuries, so you, it's more idealized. There's not as much detail in them as, I, as we need today. I mean, the stories that I've told are very detailed because I wanted to show processes that people go through to get to this point, you know, in their thinking. The first story of Abdullah Schleifer, who we both know very well, um, Abdullah, you know, was a t like a, actually kind of a terrible person. And he certainly likes to paint himself that way, um, even though he's a decent, he's a decent man. But, he, you know, he, he did a lot of terrible things. And, uh, he went, th he, was, he was, what's interesting is he was, he, he, he understands what he went through. And so one of the things that characterize most of the stories is that the people telling them are 
fairly advanced in years, you know, between 50 and 80, you know. So the, it, but I have one story of a young man named Muhammad Davis, who's only 20, and it's a beautiful story. And Muhammad was, is extraordinary because he understands, he, he, he has a very clear understanding of what he went through to come, he was born into a Muslim family, so it wasn't as if he discovered Islam, but he had to, the story is called Get Back. He wanted to get back to the time when he was growing up in Yemen, as a, you know, when his parents were studying in Yemen. And this, his whole story is about that, is getting back to this thing that he had as a child. And it's a beautiful story. But it's unusual that a, a young person of that age has that kind of perspective on their own life. And I was very taken by his story and very happy that, that uh, we, you know, we, 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 had di we had lunch together or something in, in Istanbul. And he started talking and I said, oh my God, I have to, you know, I have to record you. You're, it's too interesting because he really, he nailed his own story. And that's unusual. Mostly, I couldn't have done it at that age. I didn't know what, what was happening, really. It was all intuitive and... Who else is waiting? Yeah. Well, I can say. Um, my question is related to the responsibility that comes with storytelling. I study women convicted of murder in Pakistan and are currently serving sentences in Lahore. Uh, Allah. I explore my PhD and I feel that I have a part in that pattern, but there's a lot of responsibility that comes to Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine the responsibility in your and I'll give you one case. I won't tell you which story, um, <clears throat> but um, w one of the, w the narratives includes a, 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 a sequence where these guys were living next to Charles Manson. Uh, does anyone not know who he is? a mass murderer, you know, and, the, and, it, and it was a really colorful kind of sequence that they, they related. And they both came back and said, no, you've got to take it out, you know. So I took it out, and it didn't hurt the narrative at all, um, because they, they just didn't want that kind of sordid, you know, association. And, and many people didn't want to talk about using drugs. And, and so when you tell a story, you, you, do, you don't tell everything. You tell what, you know, you feel is... is you, you can take. So every story has been has been vetted by by um, the people that you know that, that it's about. Although the, one of the stories is on Danny Thompson. I don't know if any of you know him, but he's a great great musician, um, and he's very well known as a stand-up bass player. And I love him, you know, I have a very good relationship with him. So I called him, I said, the book is out. He said, you rascal, I never gave you permission to, <laughs> you know, which he, he didn't 
except he read the story and said it was okay, you know, so I said, I'll buzz off, you know, too late. But um, I, I, I understand what you mean. It's very, very sensitive. And, and uh, I've self-censored certain, I mean, one or two of the stories, people have made themselves anonymous. And on one other story, I made the editorial decision to make somebody anonymous, to change their name. Even though they said it was okay for me to use the name, I thought this, is, this might hurt them you know, professionally or something. So I, I, I changed their name. So I try to be very careful about that. Please next up. Yep. So I have a question in terms of like, how did the book, Collecting Stories and maybe you know, learning of all these different lives, how did that change you and maybe your perception of Islam and maybe of people in general? What transformed you that well, uh, you know, my, my friend and neighbor is, is, is a man named Shams Friedlander who's written about 10 books or 12 books. And Shams said to me, um, I'm lazy. So when I want to learn about something, I, I write a book about it, you know. And it was a little bit like that with me, with this book. I, I really wanted to, to, to understand the process of Taubah more. So because uh, it, it, it seemed to me that we had a very imperfect understanding of what, of what that is. And, and it, uh, uh, the idea of repentance always kind of slightly baffled me, you know, uh, mainly because I, I took on the sort of Christian uh, definition of it, where it's this, you know, final, you know, ultimate thing that you do, and then you never do anything wrong ever again. You know what I mean? So, um, so I, I learned about I learned a lot about that just through reading some of the the books, uh, and and I realized how important Tauba is in terms of a spiritual path. It's very very important. You can you know, it's I think we gloss that, or we don't understand. It's it's something that you you experience every moment, you know. Uh, my teacher, Sayyid Omar Abdullah, uh, used to say that the, that the, the Salihin are, are, think of themselves as Abid al-Waqt, the slaves of, this, of the moment, of the second. Every moment, every moment is accountable. Every breath is accountable. So it's, it's becoming, you know, constant in, in that turning and not feeling racked with guilt. It's, it's not about guilt, it's just about doing, you know, constantly turning. You, you know, the Pro Prophet Muhammad said, if you did not sin, Allah would destroy you and replace you with the people who sinned so that they can make tawbah, you know. They can ask uh, for forgiveness and, the God, and he said, and Allah will forgive them. So it's that understanding that I, I, it deepened my understanding of that. Yep. Um, there's a, I'm very hopeful for your book because um, the number of books translated um, of Ismail Topash's books, story books in Brazilian uh, in Portuguese, and uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, my, my friend, my Jaffa, he is translating your book 
Facebook? Yes, they contacted me, yeah. This book, the previous one has been translated into Turkish, and it's also being translated into French, um, and and as you said, Portuguese. This book just came out, so I think it's, and I'm very passive about these things. If someone wants to do it, that's fine. If not, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> exercise myself to try to get it translated. Also, Habib Ali Jifri uh, uh, has said that he wants to translate the first book, but I haven't heard anything about that uh, since since he said that. So I don't know if anything's happened. Yeah, I, I wonder if you have any advice, you know, out of the series of experiences that you've had and the people that you've met from both this book and the signs of the horizon. <laughs> To, to the upcoming generations, especially living here, you know, acknowledging that we are, you know, normally we are found as opposed to finding. But, but what, what would you advise people can do as much as possible to strive uh, towards a, an eventual idea where they are found by outside? I'm sorry, what was the last thing you said? Uh, so, I, I guess acknowledging the fact that, you know, that, we, uh, that normally we are found as opposed to, as opposed to we actually strive to find. Um, but what would you advise that we can actually do within our power to be found by, by God? Well, I, I th first of all, I think that you, you need to, to remember God as much as you can. In, in, in other words, you do invocation, you remember Allah in every situation, standing, sitting, uh, reclining. Uh, and cleave to good teaching. That uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim, uh, you know, he, he s keep to the teaching that he's, he, he he gives to the uh, the people here, because he's rightly guided and he and he has a great understanding. <laughs> and uh, keep to the tradition. Um, We've lost, what's happened is that the Deen al-Ihsan has been ripped out of uh, mainstream Islam and been labeled as Sufism or something other than that. But it's actually, in, it, you, you, you can't actually be a Muslim unless you have Deen al-Ihsan. So it's, it's you know, cleaving to, to that. Also, you need to be in need. You know, one of the, Shuyuk, he said, um, if you knew the if you knew that uh, the value of of distress, you would only ask Allah for distress. If you knew the value of need, you 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 would only ask Allah to make you in need. Uh, people ask me, what do you do when you go to a sheikh? I mean, how should you be? And I say, you should be needy. You should feel a great deal of vulnerability and need. If you go and you're complacent and full of yourself and everything, you're not gonna get much out of an encounter with someone of knowledge. So, um, uh, I mean, and to keep good company. I think that's very important. We were talking uh, earlier today about how people experience loneliness. And this is, a, this is kind of a new thing. 
in my generation, I, I don't know anyone in my, I, I know people were, feel lonely in, in, a, in, every situ, in every time, but in my generation, this wasn't a common factor, loneliness. Now people are very, very lonely, and it's because of the way people are living now. If you're living through a mobile phone device, you're going to get lonely because you're in, you're in an illusion of community. You're not really, because real understanding is the inter, comes with the interaction of, of human beings, not with emojis and, you know, stuff like that. It, it doesn't, that doesn't do anything for you. You know, if you have a million likes, it doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. <clears throat> it's the actual, you know, interaction between people. And what you want to do is be in good company. And if you can sit, you know, one of the, uh, one of the great awliya, he had a dream of the Prophet, and he said, and the, he said, Ya Rasulullah, what is the best thing one can do in this world? And the Prophet, والسلام, said to sit with a friend of God for as long as it takes to, cook an, uh, to milk a goat or cook an egg, you know. Sitting with people, you know, with, with people of knowledge, just sitting with them is healing, you know, it changes you. So this, we don't have enough of this. People are wandering around there. They're, and, you know, keeping, keeping good company is very important and keeping away from bad company, uh, that sort of thing. Those, those are active things you can do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so what being accepted, the relationship between being accepted by God or and being accepted by people. So with the story of him, um, he said he found it difficult to then be like rehabilitated to society. And so think of the end, he said that people can't forgive a sin if they can't understand it. It's, um, so he, he found people kind of yeah. couldn't bear his story. I was wondering the idea of like, did that ever get in the way of Okay, let me let me repeat the qu question for uh, the audience because I don't think they heard it. Um, it's the relationship between being accepted by God and being accepted by people, and uh, you you cited the um, the story of the pimp uh, who had a, has had a. a this is a man who, you know, did some very terrible things, went to prison for it, and then went through university. You know, he, in prison, he wanted to stay, he didn't want to have to work, but in order to reduce his sentence, he went to school. And then he found that he was good at school, and he kept going through the entire, his entire sentence he, he, he studied. When he got out, he, he, he had a huge number of college credits. Um, and he went, in, he went to university, he got, a, he got um, a financial aid, um, he, got his, he got his BA, and then he got his master's degree, and then he got a PhD, and he went through this whole process, and um, he, he, he was hired by USC, which is a very prestigious university in California, where he'd gotten his PhD, he, he taught for one day and was dismissed because of his, his record. He was a pimp. And what you said, I'm sorry, it's taking a long time. To, um, what 
what you said was that he was he, he ultimately he couldn't get a job even though he had a PhD because of his prison record so it's and I think that's a, a big dilemma for him, you know, it's, it's, but then Allah, Allah Karim, he's working at a university in, in a Muslim country. He was accepted by the Muslim country. And this, this man, in fact, is the one that I made him anonymous because I didn't want to hurt his, he was very forthright and courageous about it. He said, you can use my name, it's okay. But I just didn't feel comfortable doing that because I didn't want him to lose his job where he was in case that was something that could happen. Um, and so the question was, again, what was the question? Well, Ibn Atayla said, if people are attacking you, be satisfied with your knowledge of God that within you. And if you're not satisfied, that is a much worse problem than being attacked by people. So in the end of the day, it's, it's, it's your relationship with God that is far more important with the approval of other people. I mean, I think that's part of, it's not that you become antisocial, but if you have something where someone is against you, um, you, you turn that to Allah, and it's, it's good. I actually, when I was running a company, my deputy was a very hot-headed, great guy, but a very hot-headed guy who had authority problems, and sometimes he would be incredibly rude to me, you know. And I would go back and I'd have to literally, you know, turn to Allah and say, Allah, you know, forgive him and forgive me for, you know, being affected by that. Because he sometimes he'd just blow up and he'd be very, he, you know, he had a problem with his father. So I understood all that. Um, so we all have these things, you know. I mean, as a, as a public figure, Sheikh Abdul Hakim has had his share of, you know, that sort of thing. And I think in the end, you turn to Allah, and Allah will take care of you. You know the story of Sayyidina Adi, uh, uh, radiallahu anhum. Sayyidina Adi was being attacked by someone in front of the Prophet, and all through the time that, uh, that this person was accusing Sayyidina Adi of something, the Prophet was smiling. And then Sayyidina Ali stood up and st started to defend himself. And the Prophet frowned and got up and left. And Sayyidina Ali ran after him and said, Ya Rasulullah, what, what, what did I do? And he said, when he was attacking you, the angels were defending you. I could, I could see them. That's why I was smiling. And when you stood up and started defending yourself, the angels left. You know, so it's that kind of relationship that you have with the unseen, even though you don't see the angels, you have to realize that if, you're, if someone's against you or you're having a problem, and then a lot of times you just pray for, you know, if someone's, I'll give you an example, my hot-headed deputy came back from, we had a, the Dubai shopping festival was a client of ours, and he came back, and he was running that account, and he came back, and he was just mortified and livid because one of the women who was he was dealing with 
was really vicious and unpleasant. She insulted him and she said all these things. And he said, no one's ever talked to me like that. And I said to him, maybe she just, something happened in her life that, you know, she, she didn't mean it, but she, you know, she was venting or she let out. And she'd had a miscarriage that day, you know, we found out later. And that's what happens is you have to look for excuses for people and, you know, and, and again, this is all the process of tauba. The heart is constantly turning, you know, constantly, you know, subhanAllah. Time is getting on. Mm. Has been very generous. Uh, does anybody have one further observation? <coughs> Can I just ask then about the next book? Oh, well, it's, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be slightly incoherent about it. Um, we, um, I, in the course of sort of meeting other Muslims and, and since the, um, publication of Signs on the Horizons, people have quite un understandably asked me about things about the path and how you find a sheikh and do you need to have a spiritual path and all, all of these things. And I, I've never felt altogether comfortable answering these questions. So what we've done is we've interviewed four, or actually three so far, and four, four shayukh who are well-known, authentic, uh, traditional uh, shiuch uh, on these subjects. And we've asked a series of questions, this, the, an identical series of questions, to each of these four uh, shiuch. The one is Sheikh Mohammed Jilani, who's from the Gambia. Uh, the other is uh, Muli Hashim Balghiti from uh, Morocco who's the successor to Ibn al-Habib. Uh, the other is uh, Sheikh Abdullah al-Haddad from Fez. And the fourth, hopefully, will be Habib Omar bin Hafiz. So these are men that are recognized and, you know, they're, they're wise, wise men. So we've asked these questions um, uh, of, uh, uh, in a, like, should, should everyone take a spiritual path? Is it necessary? Uh, do, do you need a sheikh? How do you determine whether a sheikh is authentic? You know, and so we're, we've started, uh, we've done the interviews, the three interviews, and uh, uh, after tomorrow, um, we'll start, uh, I'm going to start compiling the, 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 the content of the interviews, and then we'll figure out how we're going to do it. But the idea is basically to, to, to make these, these, deal with these questions in a very clear light over a spectrum of, 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 of religious opinions that's, that's not theological and not jurist, juristic, it's, it's on the spiritual path itself. And hopefully that will be helpful to, uh, to, to um, young people who are seeking, because people are very, um, you know, confused about this. They, they, they don't know where to go or how to, how to do it. And there, there are things, you know, how do you, how do you tell whether someone is true, is authentic? Because there are a lot of people floating around 
who are dodgy, you know, and 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 yet if you're young and you 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 don't have any uh, background in these things, you can you know find yourself in the company of someone who's and being with people of false claims is very dangerous. You have to be very careful. One of the shiuk that I used to visit in, in Mecca, he said the worst person on the face of the earth is a man of false claims. It's, it's, it's a very serious thing because they're, they're like a cardiovascular surgeon who's not qualified, you know, and opening up your heart and messing around and they don't know what they're doing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's very serious. So that's, that's the idea behind it. I don't know if that's coherent or not, but... I'll look forward to it, I'm sure. Inshallah. Thank you so much. I know you've been struggling against the... Uh, yeah. Very, very great yeah. Stay away from me, because I don't want to give you anything. Yeah. <coughs> Many thanks for the book. Okay. And I can recommend it, not just as something we should all be uh, buying, having for ourselves, but also it's a great kind of gift for people. A lot of people, I guess, has inner thirsts, inner traumas, and there's definitely something in that book that can practically help people, give them hope, give them a sense of light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people are hurting nowadays, and a book like this is of uh, genuine healing value. So, inshallah, it is... What's the best way of getting hold of it? Do we have copies here? We have some copies. Could you tell us how we can get our hands on them? We're going to bring some in, and okay. then City Haring can sign, and um, Yeah. Um, also, it's available on Amazon, and uh, so, some of the Muslim bookstores have ordered it, so they, they're, you know, Dar al-Taqwa, for example, has it. But you can easily get it on Amazon.com, uh, unless, you're, unless you're living in Australia, then God help you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Alhamdulillah. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks you for again. having me. Yeah. Before long, try and do the launch of the next book here. Inshallah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll do that. Well, I'm definitely going to do it here first, not where I did it before, because you completely wiped me out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Alaykum salam.